0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello.
1: Welcome to On Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Justin Smolin, the host of this episode. I am joined today by Professor Uzver Moyne, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and Professor Alan Strathern, Associate Professor in History at the University of Oxford. We are in conversation today about their new book, Sacred Kingship, Between Imminence and Transcendence, published by Columbia University Press in 2022. So my first question is just about the impetus of the project. I understand, of course, that the immediate impetus was the Conference of Oxford, the origin point of the essays in this volume. I also know, uh, however, (laughs) Professor Strathern's earlier review of the Millennial Sovereign, which references sacred kingship, imminence, and transcendence. So, I was interested if you could recount for the audience how the two of you came together and your visions for the collaboration.
2: Hello, so I'm um, Alan Strafter and I'm one be authors. And well, I think it started really when I first came across Aspar's uh, PhD thesis online. And rather unusually uh, wrote him directly about it, it was, it was unusually good for a PhD thesis and um and then we we were in contact and uh we realized that our thoughts ran in tandem in various ways um and as i came to oxford and i think he as it was particularly the occasion of you giving some lectures in oxford that that started off the the project isn't that
3: right yes uh yes this is asper Moin. Uh, that's absolutely right uh, Adam likes to joke that he discovered me and in some ways he did <laughs> Uh, but i i did he invited me to oxford i i went and gave lectures and then we discovered that we were um, uh, actually reading the same things on religion and uh, sort of the long during historical sociology of religion uh, we had been simultaneously interested in it and so that started a long uh, sort of intellectual dialogue and uh, a, a friendship developed uh, around that as well so, uh, and, and, and then uh, when I was invited uh, in 2019, I believe, uh, to the Radha Krishna Memorial Lecture Series uh, at All Souls College. So I was going to be in residence in Oxford for so three weeks. And that's when uh, Alan's book was uh, Unearthly Powers uh, was about to, to come out. So we decided that this was a good time do to, uh, to a conference around the sacred kingship and uh, oxford is an ideal place because uh, you know we can bring people from uh, both europe as well as from the from from north america and we pooled our collective uh, sort of uh, you can say ro- academic decks and we decided that uh, we wanted to really have a uh, a strong conversation across the disciplines and uh i think that the thing that was different about this particular conference was that uh, uh we decided to write a framework paper uh, a manifesto uh, which becomes the first chapter of uh, this particular volume sacred kingship in world history and um, that, that, I must say, required, I had to convince Alan because, you know, that was a major effort. We had to put it put it in before we called the conference. Uh, and But it, I think it really worked well because it allowed us to put a framework together that then uh, we could ask people to respond to. It gave everyone a common theoretical vocabulary. So a classicist and somebody who worked on ancient Egypt could talk to somebody in co- who was a com- you know, in comparative literature. And uh, so the the conference really went re- uh, very well. So it wasn't, I would say, not a, a typical conference. It was uh, done a little unusually. Um, uh, and um, I think the amount of effort we put into curating it, <clears throat> I think paid off. <clears throat> well, w-
1: uh, wonderful. Well, my next question um, is a bit different. So uh, it's, it's about that uh first chapter um so the word provocative occurs a number of times in the preface introduction and conclusion you say for instance at the first chapter that it was written quote in a deliberately provocative condensed and abstract manner so in this respect i wanted to invite each of you to discuss whether or not you see yourselves as scholars working against the grain in some sense of your own respective disciplines and fields and who or what you see your primary foils to be and uh just a suggestion, but surely a distaste for generalization in the comparative enterprise might be one foil.
2: Yes, I think you're, you know, you're, you're right there. Um, and we, we definitely knew that what we were doing, um, felt transgressive. I think both in the field of history and in the field of, of, of religious studies, I think there was no one general body of scholarship that we were, um, that we had in our science. And there's more just a a sense of a a general set of tendencies or or instincts which arise out of how people are trained now. Um, It seems that the way that you gain scholarly capital is by deconstruction and by critique. That's how you show that you're a competent young or even established scholar in the humanities is um, is to display skepticism towards precisely the kind of model building that we found exciting and really just the... Um, just, just wanted to take the opportunity to look at to look at the very big the very big picture.
3: Yes, I'll echo that. the The long duration and comparative approach uh, that we use to frame the conversation and derive analytical categories form, uh, as you probably know, are currently not in vogue, uh, and in fact uh, were frowned upon at the turn of this century. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, and I think the key word that uh, Alan used here is model building. Uh, you know I've, I've been in the Department of religious studies for 10 years now and and I often teach our incoming uh, PhD students first seminar on theory and method and uh, the the general trend in the field is to, to, to uh, teach critique uh, critique of Previous theories and uh, one of the things I started doing in, uh, in in my theory and method seminar was to say, well, how about we first learn to build models before we critique them? And I very quickly realized that very few students come into the program learning how to build models, how to think sociologically, and uh, it's the it's the long durée uh, sociological approach, especially in the work of Robert Bellah, uh, that. Uh, that uh you know i i began to use to to uh, to both uh, show what model building but also as well to get people to to think that it doesn't matter whether you're doing in studying religion in in ancient times or you're you're an ethnographer there are some common conceptual categories that 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 uh, you you can have to, to to talk across disciplines and across time periods in geography so uh so that was an experience that I think um, uh, both of us brought into uh, in, in, into this conversation, and uh, I would say that you know we we felt that the predominant theories in the field that that are being uh, taught and and discussed in use in the last twenty years or so uh, have gotten bogged down a bit in in rather abstract notions of post-modernity, post-colonialism, post-secularism, etc. And that scholarship is in danger of losing sight of fundamental problems that still remain open and need to be engaged with, and and that's something that we try to do in this book.
1: Wonderful, yeah. Well, I think that's um, what makes the book uh, sort of so exciting. At least uh, speaking for myself, I mean, kind of speaking personally, I think as a kind of University of Chicago. Uh, sort of historian of religion or introduce you get introduced to a lot of models, but then you're also kind of told, well, they're all defunct and you know, you can't use any of them and you should be attacking them. So it's this like strange kind of like, you know, in between, but that, that brings me to my uh, next question, which is, um, about the kind of, uh, sort of uh, possible, at least you could frame it as such like crisis in the field of religious studies. So, uh, the field of religious studies has, famously been unable to define its object for the last several decades, generally my generation of historians of religion were told ever since the demise of Clifford Geertz's theory of religion as a cultural system. So the introductory chapter once again sets out what it calls a heuristic definition of religion and references Professor Strathern's earlier suggestion that religion may be difficult to define because it contains two opposing tendencies, imminence and transcendence both of which are importantly tied up with approaches to community, hierarchy, and political authority. So I'll ask you something about these uh, polarities in a moment, but first I wanted to ask about the intended implications of your approach for a religion's wissenschaft more broadly. Do you mean to suggest, as I think one well could, that approaches to religion and or politics that neglect, in a phrase, political theology are defunct, And more broadly, are you offering our field a way out of its definitional predicament? Or is this a more limited heuristic approach for those wanting to study
3: sacred kingship? So I'll go first. Um, This is a a complex question to answer, but I'll I'll begin by answering it in a word and say, yes, uh, we think we have found a way out of the problem of defining religion. And uh, I would say that sacred kingship uh, is a key part of the solution. Now, the question is, what's the, what's the relationship between sacred kingship and political theology? And the way I would put it is that the concept of political theology is really derivative of the practice of sacred kingship. And the latter, uh, we argued in the book, is fundamental for understanding what has broadly been called religion, right? So I think political theology is is theorized or conceptualized out of the practice of citizenship and uh, and religion now as as Dietz argued in his heuristic definition, uh, which works just fine as far as I'm concerned as an entry into the problematic, uh, is born as a solution to existential concerns. Right. So religion is 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 really uh, you know simply put a, a solution to or a response to existential concerns. What we are saying here is that political organization in any human society is also a response to existential concerns, no matter what the scale and type of society. So that's, I think, a a constitutive connection of of what we would call politics and what we would call religion. Uh, So the the reason we use the term heuristic is that we wanted to provide uh, a dynamic framework that had multiple moving parts or Perhaps uh, the right word is lenses, uh, which could be used based on the context and phenomenon being studied. For instance, uh, you know, reform movements in religion that motivate disciplined ethical behavior and new forms of consciousness typically arise out of what we would call the transcendentalist impulse. While those movements that lead to the development of concrete or material forms of sacredness, such as temples, relics, pilgrimage sites, are best thought of as immanentism at work, right? So these are two very different things, but there is a relationship between the two, and organized religions often have a merging of, uh, often merge these two types depending on when, where, and how one happens to observe. So that's uh, th- that's what we really wanted to provide a dynamic model of of looking at this interaction
2: Yes, I think I'll just um chip in a little bit to say that um yeah, I think it's perfectly possible to to provide um you know decent definitions of terms like like religion just in the same way that any other analytical concept. I'm not really quite sure why religion gets placed in this especially problematic category, unlike all of the other, you know, terms that we use in our everyday analysis.
3: Yeah. Such so as history, politics, uh, literature, uh, all the other disciplines. <laughs> the economics.
1: Well, I am, uh, very much in sympathy with, uh, that, uh, the approach that you're outlining and, um, Uh, yeah what professor strather just said um i've never really understood why religion is a special case um other than maybe that you know it's a one of the master categories and and people are it's perceived to have played fast and loose with it and in various ways in the past um but uh this brings me to the other uh i guess um master category in the title which is uh world history so uh the introductory chapter champions one particular vision of the task of global history against another more popular or widespread approach which you term connected history um so this is a bit of a shorter question but would you be willing to talk through this distinction for the audience if if you think that there is a a sort of a um distinction there to be talked through
2: yeah there's a really important distinction and actually often when people talk about global history, what they're really talking about is connected global history, because that is 90% or more of, of what comes under that, that rubric. Um, and connected history is really the kind of early history of globalization. And so it's, a, you know, it's about the movements of ideas or goods or, or, or people or viruses around the planet and then around newly expansive, um, geographies. And, um, you know, that it's very good we both we, we both uh, think that connected history is a, a useful methodology as far as used it i've done some work which can count as connected history but here we're making an approach for a, a very distinct method which is about taking un, uh, apparently unrelated uh cases and sitting them side by side in order to make history Make sense in in quite a new way, so that so that you genuinely can that can make Inca kings sit alongside you know ISIS commanders in a sort of meaningful manner, um, rather than a a miscellaneous one. Now now that the vast majority of comparative history that does exist has has related to the fields of say economics and and politics and military matters. And the first thing that happens when you try to systematically do this in the field of cultural, religious history, is that you can't revel in the sort of emic concepts that most specialists deploy. Most specialists' job is to explain the distinctiveness of the particular concepts that are used by the people that they're studying. But as a comparativist, you can't do that. And you have to be, you know, you have to develop concepts that, that can speak to the, to the diversity of cases that you're, that you're looking at. Um, So a you know potential disadvantage of that is that you sometimes have to come up with new terms and terms which can look like jargon. So they can require a bit of extra work from from the reader. But the advantage is that you create a language that be, you know people from very many different specialisms can can uh, all participate in.
0: Yeah.
3: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I I think Alan's the the, the the real expert here uh, but but I'll talk about my own experience <laughs> my my first project, uh, as you might know, is I was trying to expand the arena of of mobile history uh, or understanding the mobile Empire by uh, looking at Iran and Central Asia and essentially arguing that we can't understand what happens. I mean how, we can't understand the nature of Mughal sacred kingship without understanding what happens in Iran under the Safavids uh, and, and and the earlier Timurid history now in fact in my current work i've been arguing that there's a, there's a much deeper connection between uh mongol and inner asian experience uh, of the islamic world and what the moguls do in india later on so mm-hmm. there there is something Really, to be said for breaking down these geographical specializations and and ranging broader in 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 a, a connected manner and taking sort of ma- bigger risks and in, in, um going out of your spe- in your specialization, but I think uh, and and I would credit Alan for introducing me uh, to to the comparative uh, global method, uh, which is exciting because suddenly now you have the tools to say, all right, well. If this was happening in 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 Mughal, India, can we learn from the Qing example or what is happening in Europe uh, and and or even Japan and and uh, bring the two cases together? What's the how do you develop the, the theoretical model or vocabulary to, to discuss these cases? And you know it it opens up new insights that just a straightforward historical approach uh, which remains bound within a context uh, does not so I think there is there is value uh, in 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 both approaches but we can't shun one one over the other or one for the other uh
1: wonderful well uh, my next question is about um, I guess one particular axis of kind of comparativism which is between the uh, modern and the pre-modern. So the volume includes an essay by Faisal Devji on Al Qaeda and others that follow developments up into modernity. But I think it's fair to say that uh, you focus the lion's share of your attention,
0: at least, on the pre-modern. Slash NBN50 to get 50% off. <clears throat>
1: so, in the introduction, you affirm both the secularization thesis and its critics. You suggest at one point that we have sustained another axial turn, albeit one that has produced its own equivalence to various forms of eminent and transcendent styles of kingship in the way of fascist, authoritarian, liberal democratic, and anarchic political theories, commitments, and attitudes. you also associate the preponderance of democratic modes of legitimation with a more thoroughgoing disenchantment and suggest that, quote, something massive has changed. So in view of this, I'd like to ask how, in your view, a historian of religion who studies either one side or the other, the modern or the pre-modern, should ideally go about their work? Is it possible to be a good historian of the pre-modern while ignoring the politics of the present? And if not, what sort of naive or wrong-headed perspectives on this politics, or on the rupture-continuity question itself, should we avoid?
3: So we are uh, pre-modernists and have to come ha- have come to view politics from the perspective of knockdown history, right? That that's really, I think, where where we are coming from. But in in, in this. Uh, sort of journey, uh, we realize that the modern period does have its uniqueness, and that uniqueness, uh, I would say, is the disenchantedness of politics in the global order of nation states, and uh, also of intellectual life because of the predominance of science, right? Uh, ha- having said that, we must also point out that enchanted or archaic forms uh, of both Politics and and of cosmology, the beneath the surface everywhere, even even in the modern period. For instance, the rise of demog- demagogic leaders and of conspiracy-ridden worldviews, and I mean, if you if you study them seriously, they remind you of pre-modern religious myths that once enjoyed respectability. Uh, so our social and material conditions may have changed in the last two hundred years, but uh, human psychology has not changed that much, right? So this should be obvious enough. Uh, But the important point to keep in sight is that democracy and liberalism or even communism are forms of politics that need a great deal of institutional work to keep them disenchanted. The tendency, I would argue, is for humans to enchant their world, to use symbolic forms to resolve existential problems. And the problem of politics is very much an existential one. Right, so modern students of politics should take the long term view seriously, and once they do, I think they'll realize that the uniqueness and fragility of modern secularism makes actually a lot of sense. So it's both unique, but it's also fragile.
2: They were, as far to restate what Asfar you know said, um, clearly there have been many waves of critique of sectorization theory for good reasons. Um, but from the kind of long term perspective that we were interested in, we you know, some version of it I think is is essential. Having said that, you know, our model um is fine with seeing continuity. In fact, in some ways it helps helps explain why immunitism and transm are not simply going to um to disappear. I think that both Asfar and I in some ways feel that asking present-minded questions is not a problem. And we know that many historians are very suspicious at teleology by which is often meant asking questions about how the world today got to be the way it is that's that's seen as a potentially dangerous um exercise in some corners um but you know asking why islam is the way it is and 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 not and not and hasn't taken another path is is a legitimate question for as far uh for myself you know why do a handful of religious traditions? Now dominate the planet um, when it used to be covered by uh, by a profusion of different traditions. We think those are fine questions. Um, at the same time, both Asif and I are committed to to the strangeness of the past and feel that sometimes there's a tendency um, in scholarship today of seeing it as a mode of doing politics or of establishing your moral credentials. And for us, that can lead to a quite stultifying and even quite self-contradictory um, approach. So we would like to reserve the right to study the past in a way that does not simply affirm our feelings and our, and our commitments um, in, in the present, um, while being, yeah, of course, understanding that the, the past is only meaningful because of the present. <laughs>
1: Uh, Thank you so much. So, um, the next uh, question is sort of a more generalized one. Um, The style of explication in the kind of the framing chapters is one not only of comparison over the long durée, but of ideal types, generalized concepts, and polarities which are themselves frequently qualified and combined. I think the volume as a whole uses this toolkit to great effect, but given that applying these typologies and oppositions rigidly can, as you write, sometimes be unhelpful in concrete cases especially given that after the axial age, no pure forms of imminent or transcendent kingship exist. You use the metaphor of the accretion and therefore preservation of layers when discussing this. Um, Or at least they don't generally, pure forms don't sort of begin to fade. Uh, Can you say something about how you found thinking in this sort of systematic, generalized, but also conceptually polarized manner to be helpful for your own work, including your work on local or particular contexts? And to kind of put a finer... Uh, point on it, outside of contributing to a volume such as this one, how might a specialist of a particular period and region apply your methodology and framing in their own scholarship?
2: So, I, maybe I should lead off by, by saying that the, the pure forms of immanentism do, do survive long after the Axial Age, including forms of um, divinized kingship. So the Europeans discover it when they reach the New World among the Mashika and the Incas, and they re- they find it again when they reach a state like Benin in West Africa in the sixteenth century. And then when they reach Hawaii in the nineteenth century, again we find a quite pure form of immenseism with elaborate forms of divinized kingship. And actually, in all three of those cases, we also find forms of human sacrifice, which is not a coincidence. Or we could consider the eruption of the Mongols into the Islamic world as the intrusion of a kind of imperial. Imminentism, um, as some recent work has shown, which has a number of different transcendentalisms um, competing to, to, to accommodate and, and to, 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 to uh, uh, contend with that with this eruption. Um, so for me, this typology allows us does allow us to see a whole uh, array of different patterns in, in world history. And the one that's really concerned me is, is the vulnerability of imminentism. Why did these systems, which ruled the planet, why did they disappear? Why why are they ended up? And so, I have um, my my next book, which just just completed, is looking um, very specifically, almost micro historically, at certain specific occasions, like Congo in the 1480s and 1490s, and asking you know why did the King of Congo convert to Catholicism as he did? Why did the King of Thailand in the 1688? Um, why was there a tremendous rejection of Catholicism, um, and so on? So I think you know, at least in my work, we, we can we can um, put these terms to do some very very s- s- specific uh, uh, jobs. Having said that, this work is it is th- sorry, this terminology is precise is um, designed fundamentally to do comparative work and to do very long term work, um, and so we cannot, you know. For the specialist, it may or may not be helpful. Um, one thing that I would say is that for every specialist encountering this sort of approach, will at least ask you about your own field of specialism and ask you to think, consider how, how unique is it really, or is what you're looking at as sort of interesting variation on, on some broader themes.
3: Yes, I would uh, point to the dynamic nature of our framework, uh, which is really meant to sort out religious phenomena into categories uh, so we can understand what is central at a particular moment and what is peripheral. Uh, to go to Alan's example of uh, you know, the impact of the Mongol uh, uh, Empire or rule, on Islam, I mean the Mongols uh, did not convert for several generations. Mongol kings did not, but eventually, when they did convert, they brought their preference for imminentist religion with them. So uh, there is ostensibly a link between that and the rise of shrine-centered uh, sainthood in Islam. I would argue uh, there's a preference for imminentist religion. Uh, if it's if it's got political backing behind it, then it it will proliferate. Um, and, uh, you know, a simpler example is that when, when one goes to the Hajj, uh, it is to be closer to the sacred. Uh, it's not to impose the righteous order on the world. So, uh, these are very different things, uh, but they are psychologically and, uh, with, and, and, you know, with, with different psychological and, and sociological implications, but they are interlinked. Somebody who has gone on Hajj might, when they come back, we might more be more inclined uh, towards righteousness uh, and and impose that on others. So, uh, uh, in my own work, I focused on sainthood and kingship in Islam to demonstrate how these eminentist forms counterbalanced and at times effectively negated uh, the doctrinalism and legalism of Islam, uh, which forms its very important uh, transcendentalist side.
1: Thank you so much. Um, well, this next question may be a bit uh, more speculative, but I wanted to ask about pluralism and, broadly speaking, political theology. So, as theorized by Carl Schmidt, political theology conventionally assumed a fixed backdrop of metaphysics or theology, which determines the, con- the structure, I'm, I'm sorry, of concepts of political authority for a given period and region. I've always found this a little confusing to apply, because in many historical contexts, including the milieu of early modern Islamic South Asian, which I work, you don't really find a stable, fixed backdrop of kind of metaphysics or shared images of the world, but rather a diversity of traditions and images of the world coexisting. So in light of this problem, I wanted to ask about how the model you propose would treat religious pluralism and or interfaith interaction. So while there's obviously some comment on religious pluralism and polity in the volume, uh, most of the interactions addressed in the intro and conclusion are not between religions as such, but between ideal types and political theological epistemes or regimes, transcendentalism, uh tendencies or righteous and divinized king, kingship, etc. So I guess the question is, how much does this sort of uh, framing map neatly or messily onto interreligious
3: interactions such? Yes, that's a, that's really a complex uh, question. And, you know, there's reams of material written on God Schmidt, But I think the, the, the heart of the, or the crux of the question is, what exactly is, is does Schmidt mean by religion? And here I would say that, you know, you use the word interfaith. Uh, let, let's dissect that for a moment. Uh, in our model, faith would uh, be best understood as a transcendentalist way of describing religion, Uh with that it assumes that religion is about the intellect. It is about holding a particular doctrine or belief in your head. Uh, faith is also where, uh, something that requires conversion, uh, which is the rejection of one's existing cultural ties and memories so that new ones can take their place. Um, wherever there is faith, there is conversion, which then leads to the problem of uh, tolerating uh, or the problem of tolerance. Uh, without this form of religiosity, Usually, the problem of tolerance isn't quite the same as, as how we come to think of it uh, in, in this paradigm. Now, this intellectualization of religion is post-axial and depends on the, the technology of the book uh, that allows for you know certain abstractions to have a long life um, and, and value in, 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 in social and political uh, life. So and while it has effectively changed the world, it also has important limits beyond which begins to fail. Because religion cannot stay intellectualized. It must embed and become part of the unthought. So this is the long-term approach uh, about thinking about religion and politics, or religion and or empire, that we are advocating. And if you keep this in mind, uh, Schmidt begins to make sense in a particular way uh, we have to remember that schmidt main schmidt's main target is seculars right he was against uh, the enlightenment uh, and the, and the secular world what he really was arguing for was or what he wanted or desired was a world in which religion was of primary importance and existed prior to politics um, in a word what he wanted was the world of sacred kingship that had that seemed to have slipped away at the time, uh, but uh, he didn't really spend much time thinking about the complexities of that world. And it, and if you want to do that, you have to. Uh, we would argue take this long durée approach, and uh, and 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 understand the various components of of what uh, sacred kingship uh, or or this form of religiosity means uh, for politics. And I think that's the background we're offering. Uh, so when when Schmidt is read against that, a certain meaning uh, sort of becomes clear. And the problem of secularism, I think, is, is highlighted.
2: Yes, yeah, I would just add that, I mean, in a sense, much of my work is about watching religions interact and trying to explain um, what happens. I think you're particularly interested in cases where a court culture might happen to go on you know, various different traditions. I suppose, from my perspective, I tend to think that the, that the model builds to that and just fine. Um, is particularly, of course, the more imperial a polity is, the more there are going to be different constituencies that the um, the, the, the kind of production of royal theatre has to speak to and has to has to enact, and um, um, and that's fine. And we have to remember that. You know, the Indic transcendentalisms behave differently to the monotheisms in a certain way. So, for the Indic traditions, com- combination is the norm. We, we can still use our concepts there. So, if I'm looking at a the Theravada Buddhist polity, it's clear to me that the transcendentalist realm is heavily monopolated by the Theravada tradition and by the Sangha on an institutional form. But in terms of the construction of royal ritual, they will draw on brahmins for that, and they will, in a sense, immanentize brahmanism and turn it into a kind of magico-ritual system, and in a in a quite profound way. And of course, they're very happy to draw on a whole non-brahmanic array of deities and divinities and and suck that into into the production royalty as well. So, and then of course, if we get into the Mahayana Buddhist world, it's going to be combining with say Shinto in Japan, with Confucianism, with Taoism, and our chapter in the book by Michael Pulitz on China, um, it it is an example of that. So um, the the interesting interesting thing is, is that the the concepts of transcendentalism and Immunism can cut across those traditions as well, so that we can see what Buddhism and Taoism might have in common, for example.
1: no, thank you very much. I think you both did a, a great job of sort of like fleshing out for the audience um how that would kind of like work in practice. Um, <clears throat> so in closing, I'd just like to ask both more narrowly what ambitions you both have for this uh, ongoing project of an interdisciplinary world history focusing on uh, sacred kingship, uh, what room you see for expansion or new directions in the future, uh, and more broadly, just what projects you're respectively engaged in.
2: Well, this was a, a quite experimental and playful uh, project. We wanted to create a grand narrative and set it off into the world and see what happens. And we we maybe wanted to create a, a model of um, how to bring scholars together and really ask them to speak a, a similar language as a collaborative enterprise. And and you know that's what it is. And we shall see. We shall see what happens. In terms of my own work, I'm interested in another comparative project looking at the way that religion and state interact across the early modern world. And in a way it was sort of stimulated by this project to the sense that, you know, we spend the book thinking a lot about how much political authority has to be conceived in religious terms about pre-modernity. So the obvious question is, okay, so how did that huge boulder get shifted? How did how did things change? And obviously, you know, in putting it like that, I'm presupposing that some kind of secularization happens. How did sacred kingship and, and monarchy itself get toppled from its normative pedestal? Now, that's a very old question, and vast amounts of scholarship have been addressed to it. And just as we were discussing with Karl Schmidt, it often doesn't take it a rigorous global comparative uh, perspective. Um, in the book, we touch on this briefly, particularly in the last part. Uh, the last chapter, um, we could look at Robert Yale's chapter on Hobbes, Hobbes, which we see as a sort of, uh, a reaction to the excess and transcendentalism that's displayed in the English civil war. They talk about the enlightenment. Um, but we, um, we say that very clearly across the early modern world, we can't generalize to say that there is any real diminution of sacred kingship. though so that tends to happen in the period, you know, just after early modernity, but what i very much want to um ask is whether asian transcendentalisms were producing any equivalent cognitive resources for critiquing and undermining monarchical authority so we talked at the beginning of this podcast about how most global history is connective history so what that means in in intellectual history terms is really a connective history of the consequence of the European Enlightenment. So, we have a lot of work looking at how liberal ideas and Enlightenment ideas were very quickly taken up by non Europeans and repurposed and developed and radicalized. Um, but strikingly absent is a determined consideration of what might have been happening or what could have happened in Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam, Confucianism, which could have been used to generate. Um, some kind of critique of monarchy, of, of monarchy or, or some kind of basis for for radical politics. So, so in, in ways of putting the, this in very grand terms, yeah, you know, is there was there another axial link to modernity other than the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian one?
3: Yes, uh, I'm interested in, in many, of these, uh, you know, many of these ideas and concepts uh, and models uh, and in applying them to understand key moments of Islamic history. It is clear to me now that the institution of sacred kingship is an odd fit with the doctrines of Islam. But it is also the case that the religion depended on sacred kingship to expand and thrive. So it produced a massive tension. Uh, And this tension led to a great deal of creativity in pre-modern Islamic institutions, specifically institutions of politics. But this creativity has yet to be fully studied and appreciated, I think, uh, as arising from this intense struggle between transcendentalism and eminentism. Uh, So to give you the example of the long-lasting institution of the Abbasid Caliphate, I mean, it survived for 500 years. But after the first 100 years, it lost political and, and doctrinal authority. So for the rest of the 400 years, what exactly was the function of the Abbasid Caliph? Uh, the fact is that, you know, in the 11th century, you could not become a king either in Egypt or in India or in, in, in Iran or Central Asia without touching the Caliph's body, Right. So it was an institution that links the political imagination and frankly sovereignty, political rituals of sovereignty across the Islamic world, much of the Islamic world. But why was this institution so strong when, when it had no, uh, you know, what we would call religious power or, or um, military power or political power? And the answer is that it, it had become an imminentist institution. It had immense ritual power. Uh, and uh, it was driven by rituals of sovereignty. Now, uh, my, most of the approaches to Islam would try to understand the institution of the caliph by either studying books of Islamic law or of political philosophy, as if somehow this institution uh, arises from from the scriptural tradition. But in fact, I would argue it's the exact opposite. It, it In some ways, it's, it's a counterbalance to the scriptural tradition. Uh, uh, and and it complements it but does not uh, is not dependent on it uh and uh, so so that's just one example and uh, and you know and to, to generalize from it i would say a straightforward reading of islam as a discursive tradition for instance or or of a system of virtue ethics will not get us very far in my opinion and i think we need to expand our models for approaching it and and i think uh, you know that that's that's what i'm currently trying to do
1: Well, thank you both very much for uh, your time. It was an honor to meet you both. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us at the uh, New Books uh, Network. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. These were wonderful questions, uh, Justin, and uh, we appreciated the opportunity.